Good morning. Welcome to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. I'm Mike Elsey. I'm the director of the Presidential Library. Very proud and privileged to hold that appointment. Uh, I'd like to introduce, first of all, before I get started, my deputy director over here, Ida Kelly, who's responsible for this event. Thank you, Ida. So I'm delighted and privileged to host this special event and timely program entitled A History of the U.S.-Israeli Relations as Seen Through the Oval Office. And by the way, I'll mention later we have a brand new Oval Office through which you can view this entire program with noted historian Dr. Gil Troy. A little about this grand place, the Nixon Library, before I turn this over. The Nixon Library and Birthplace, dedicated in 1990 as a private institution, um, operated privately for 17 years, and in 2007 became a member of the uh, presidential library system administered by the National Archives. It was the 12th member library at the time. Uh, George W. Bush, 43, became the 13th there, shortly thereafter, and now we have a 14th for President Obama located in Chicago. The presidential library system and this particular presidential library is an archival rep repository for the pre, post, and presidential papers of Richard Nixon, our 37th president. At this particular library, which is one of the largest repositories and one of the busiest research libraries, has 47 million pages of textual records, 700 hours of film, 4,000 hours of television recordings, half a million photographs, and 4,469 hours, approximately, of White House tapes. <laughs> we, we counted those. And on the other side, we have a presidential museum. The Presidential Museum, which is our, our permanent gallery just down the hall, is a must-see. We just completed a $15 million reinvention of that museum, and I really encourage you to go see it. We have 70 new exhibits, 300 photographs, 8,000 square feet of wall murals, and an 18,000 square feet of exhibit space. We gutted the entire original museum and designed and developed and installed and constructed a brand new permanent gallery. One of those, we have a whole bunch of interactives in there, but one of those interactives is Tough Choices. Uh, and that is of particular interest because uh, it presents to the visitor uh, President Nixon's decision-making process uh, that led to the support for the USA, of USAID to Israel for the Yom Kippur War. And there are a variety of those kinds of uh, displays and exhibits that would suggest a great deal of uh, admiration and support uh, by the Nixon administration for the State of Israel. Today's event is possible because we have a new collaboration, very proud to say, with Orange County's Community Scholar Program. So it's my pleasure to introduce Ari Katz, founder and director of the Community Scholar Program. Ari? Thank you, everybody, for coming out on a Thursday morning. I'm very impressed. We filled out this room. In fact, we were going to be in a smaller room, but we got so many people that wanted to come, and, and C-SPAN wanted to record that we moved into this great room. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, we are CSP, Community Scholar Program. This is our 16th year of doing programs in Orange County, 
Uh, we have been bringing some of the best minds in the world to Orange County. We have a iTunes site, OCCSP, and you can hear over 200 of our programs um, if you've missed the first 15 and three quarters years. This is also, uh, yes, this is also uh, one of our first programs in our new endeavor called CSP North, where we're serving uh, members of the northern part of the community. And it's our first time um, doing a program here at the Nixon Library. It is very impressive. We went on a private tour before the program, and it is night and day compared to what was here before. So I urge you all to stay afterwards, grab a sandwich, and go check out the library. I, too, wanted to thank um, Ida Kelly for um, helping to coordinate today's program. Thank you, Ida. And um, a few quick notes before I do the introduction. Uh, number one is um, we have our 16th annual one-month scholar coming to town, Professor David Ruderman from University of Pennsylvania. We have materials outside of this and other programs. He'll be presenting over 20 um, lectures starting January 3rd. His overall topic is Jewish history, Jewish thought, a journey through space and time. I hope you will all join us at one or more programs. And um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, it's a good time to take out your phones and uh, hold them up in the air where I can see them put them onto vibrate mode or turn them off so we don't interrupt the program. And also, um, I am told we have closed our drink station right now, so please don't get up in the middle of this 45-minute um, presentation. You'll have maybe an opportunity afterwards to get libations. Um, and there is a bathroom out the door to the left, to the left. Okay. Um, Gil Troy is professor of history at McGill University. Last fall, he was a visiting scholar at the Brookings Institution. An American presidential historian, he is the author of 11 books, including the recently released The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s, published by Thomas Dunn Books, St. Martin Press. It was hailed as the best book on President Clinton in his times. The book is uh, for sale in the store right after the program, and um, Professor Troy will be here to sign it for you if you would like to purchase it. His previous book, The Award-Winning Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism and Racism, was designated by Jewish Ideas Daily as one of the best Jewish books of 2012. Other works include Morning in America, How Ronald Reagan Invented the 1980s, Leading from the Center, Why Moderates Make the Best Presidents, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Polarizing First Lady, and two books which in previous years brought him to the Nixon Library and Archives for original research. See how they ran the changing role of the presidential candidate and Mr. and Mrs. President from the Trumans to the Clintons. A weekly columnist for the Daily Beast and a weekly columnist for the Jerusalem Post, Troy contributed to the campaign stops at section of the New York Times in 2012 and just recently in 2016 and has been widely published and quoted in the American and Canadian media with recent articles in Time and Politico. A professor at McGill University since 1990, from 97 to 98, he served as chairman of McGill's history department. In March 1999, he was promoted to full-time professor, and he has repeatedly been designated by McLean's magazine as one of McGill's most popular professors, and was singled out by the History News Network as one of its first 12 top young historians. Please join me in welcoming Professor Gil Troy. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks, you all, for coming out. Uh, thank you, Mike, for your leadership. Thank you, Ida. Thank you, Ari. Uh, and it's amazing to see this collaboration between the CSP and the 
Richard Nixon Library and Birthplace, and indeed, we just saw the private tour, and it's, it's amazing. And you know, I was just lecturing this week about Nixon to my students, and started with the same thing that this exhibit begins with, the chaos of 1968. I said, you thought 2016 was crazy. <laughs> we had a crazy campaign, but in 68, Tet Offensive, King assassination, Kennedy assassination, we had serious trauma going on in this country. And when Richard Nixon was elected by just <laughs> a few votes, people from the center and the left were in trauma. And they were saying, what's going to happen? The country's not going to survive. The country faced its challenges, but the country survived. The message that I gave to them, the message I'm starting off today, the country will survive. Our constitution is strong. Our people are proud. Our people are decent. Our constitution is resilient. And we should stop moaning and groaning. Love them or hate them. We have a president-elect who's going to become president on January 20th. And we all, as Americans, have to be good citizens, give them a chance to succeed or fail, and trust the Constitution. But go on. Applaud. And we, we have to be patriotic dissents, dissidents when we criticize, but we also have to be patriotic citizens when we deal with it. And it gets to the complexity of the president, who's both our king and our prime minister. And how we deal with that is a whole other lecture. But that's not what we're talking about today. I want to start by apologizing, because I have uh, a very long and complicated journey to take with you in the next three hours. No. <laughs> uh, so the anxiety go up. And what I'm going to do, especially because we're in the Nixon Library, is I'm going to give a quick intro, then we'll focus a little bit on the 1970s, and then um, a quick uh, exit and look at some conclusions. I want to start with the notion that also I'm creating a, another distortion, which is that the title of the lecture is The History of USSR Relations Through the Oval Office. And of course, the relationship between any two countries, like the relationship between any two people, is multidimensional. And so there too, I'm just going to be trying to tell a kind of narrative thread um, that, that helps us by going through some of the key individuals. And um, we're blessed with Caesar, who's going to help us uh, advance. So let's go on to the first slide. And we're going to start, professorial uh, way, uh, with a pop quiz. Um, and the pop quiz is, who said this? The survival of Israel is not just a political issue. It's a moral imperative. <coughs> that is my deeply held belief. And it is a belief shared by the vast majority of the American people. A strong, secure Israel is not just in Israel's interest. It's in the interest of the United States and the interest of the entire free world. In fact, he said, so I'm giving it away to he. I'm giving it away. It's a president. I told the House of Representatives I would commit political suicide if I didn't support the state of Israel. This is the audience participation part of our program. Who said it? Truman, right? We're thinking Harry Truman, who was so proud of the fact he gets up uh, we'll jump ahead in the story, and, and when he supports the state of Israel, uh, recognizes the state of Israel after 11 minutes, he says, I am Cyrus, evoking the Bible. No, it's not Truman. Who said it? <laughs> it could have been David Ben-Gurion imagining what a president should say. Uh, no, but what, we're looking at presidents, because I'm, 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 I'm helping you that it's a president. Uh, maybe perhaps Nixon, right? Because you're going to see that Golda Meir said in her memoirs that Richard Nixon was the best friend Israel ever had. We'll take one more guess. 
Eisenhower, because, well, he had his frustrations, we'll see, he supported the state of Israel, and you know, initiation and, and innovation is one thing, but when you establish something, it's really more important. No, in fact, it was said, next slide, Jimmy Carter in 1977 fooled you, okay? First message, first message, first message, first, okay, okay, first message is that life is a river. History is a journey. One of the things that frustrates me, especially in the political period we're going through right now, is we're so quick to judge. We're so quick to label anti-Israel, pro-Israel. Well, first of all, every single person we're talking about today from the American presidential side is pro-Israel, right? There are truly anti-Israel forces in the world today, and I never want to recruit someone who's a critic of Israel to those awful forces who reject the very right of Israel to exist. We have to be more careful, more scientific, more deliberate in our language. Even if we criticize someone for not being sufficiently supportive of Israel, even if we criticize an Israel policy. Secondly, when Jimmy Carter said that, first of all, it was 1977, it was the start of his own journey, and just because Jimmy Carter said something in 1977, it doesn't stop him from writing an awful, uh, really evil book uh, accusing Israel of uh, an apartheid when uh, he didn't even make the case in his book and simply put that as his title. And so this is a way of saying let's enter into a journey where we're going to see a little bit of complexity. And just as Ari, and I appreciate it, told you to put your phones on mute, let's try to put our partisanship on hold. Let's put our partisanship on mute. And let's, what I always say to my students is can we talk about politics without necessarily being partisan? Can we be open up? Can we open up and just listen and learn? So we'll continue. And indeed, as somebody predicted, we're going to take the next slide, um, that uh, so we want to be aware of all, nothing, but we're actually going to see is the, the model is a relationship, right? So we're going to think about this, this relationship. And, and when, I, when I warn you about all or nothingism, I also, she loves me, she loves me notism, right? We're talking about a very complicated relationship. We're talking about a special relationship. And what's actually been extraordinary since 1948 is that it's been a very solid relationship, even with the ups and downs. The ups and downs are often most felt in the newspapers and in the Oval Office, but the solidity of the relationship between the people, between eventually after the 1970s, the military, between the economies uh, continues to be there. So we continue, and of course we start with, as somebody mentioned, Harry Truman. It's 1948. Harry Truman, who still is not fully accepted as president by many Americans, because the president, of course, was Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, classic Truman story is that one of his aides writes in his diary the day after Franklin Roosevelt dies, and Harry Truman, this unknown senator from Missouri who became vice president, partially because he wasn't such a threat, is now president. And the guy writes in his diary, I promised myself then I sat down with the President of the United States, I was gonna call him Mr. President, and I walked in and I said, Harry, how you doing? Because he was just such a Harry. He was just one of those guys. And, uh, but by 1948, Truman is you know, establishing his presence and this tremendous pressure. What do you do? November 29th, 1947, the United Nations has recognized that there's gonna be the Jewish state. It's not yet called Israel. What should the United States do? Truman is under tremendous pressure. George Marshall, the 
legendary war hero and Secretary of Defense has all but offered to resign. You know, lots of people in government often all but offer to resign because they don't really want to resign. But he's furious. He said, what are you going to do? You can't, you can't support this country of 600,000, which we're not even sure is going to survive when there are tens of millions of Arabs out there and their oil interests. What are we going to do? Don't do it. And there's lobbying from the Jewish community. And, uh, and there's a simple story that everybody likes to, to tell. We go to the next slide. Of what happened, Harry Truman had been in World War I, back when they just called it the Great War, right? They didn't quite realize it'd be a World War II. And he was a haberdasher, right? It's the only time people ever used the word. Uh, he had a men's clothing store with Eddie Jacobson, and the, the store went bankrupt. Uh, the two of them, as honorable men, worked really hard to pay back all the debts. And they, they really had a bond for life. They'd been both war buddies, and now um, had survived economic catastrophe. And the story that people love to tell is that Eddie Jacobson calls up Harry Truman, who's on the fence, and says, uh, Mr. President, because he remembered to call him Mr. President, uh, I, I have a favor. I want you to meet a very great man. That great man is Chaim Weizmann, who was, uh, end up, would end up being the president of the state of Israel. And lo and behold, 11 minutes after the, uh, the, the announcement of the state of Israel, uh, Harry Truman recognized the state of Israel. I hate that story. It's lovely, it's charming, right? But it reduces a very complicated, multi-dimensional act by a president simply to sentiment and old ties to a haberdashery. So I'm not saying the story isn't true. I also have to say that it evokes an old-fashioned medieval vision of the, the, the court Jew, the Hafyud, who would go in and would intervene through personal relations. And again, that's a phenomenon. But what else is going on? What year did this occur? 40, 48 is actually the actual establishment of the state of Israel. What's going on in 1948? Election, right? As a historian, I always say, what's my favorite text? Context. Take the camera and pull back. Don't just look at the U.S.-Israel relationship. Don't just look at the U.S.-Israel relationship through the presidency, but understand, what is Harry Truman thinking about? He's thinking about the start of the Cold War. Right, and the shock that Americans are going through. We thought we finished wars. And so what's the geopolitical dimension involved here? And in November 29th, 1947, both the Soviet Union and the United States had voted for a Jewish state, important to remember, because both are vying for Israel's, for the state of what will eventually be called Israel support, the Jewish state support. So there's a geopolitical an angle. There's also the political angle. There's the famous memo from Clark Clifford saying, you know, you're in trouble, right? Dewey wins, just like Hillary Clinton wins, right? We, we knew that, we, we, you know, the, the, the prediction was that, that, that Thomas Dewey was going to beat Harry Truman. And he says, you've got to build a new coalition. And that coalition includes the Jews of New York who, are, who care about this issue because of the Electoral College. We've learned recently the Electoral College has relevance. Um, and, and so the, the Jews have a disproportionate impact uh, in the, on the votes of New York, and you've got to, so there's a political calculation. And so when Harry Truman makes the decision, he's balancing different factors. And as a historian, I prefer to see it that way. I take in the personal. I take in the values. I also, we have to tell the story of Harry Truman, who grew up reading that book, the Bible. And he understands, as so many American presidents understand, the connection of the Jewish people to that land to the Holy Land. And he understands the values of the Jewish people and the American people 
shared by common democracy, shared by common values. And so it's a whole picture. Nevertheless, I call it a flirtation because during this very difficult moment, when Israel doesn't just want recognition, but they want arms, they need weapons, they need oil also. Truman gives the support, and that's about it. I actually want to give a shout out to my father, Bernard Troy, who helped smuggle uh, weapons to uh, Israel, probably illegal at the time, but I think statute of limitations is okay, uh, as it was passed. And, uh, and, and there was a whole smuggling operation going on uh, from New York to, uh, to the fledgling state of you know, uh, Israel. And, uh, and, and the United States government maybe turned a blind eye, but fundamentally, no formal weapons agreement, no formal military pact, there's no formal alliance. Nevertheless, Harry Truman, uh, continue, feels great about what he did, and he passes on to Dwight Eisenhower the, this complicated and growing relationship. Eisenhower feels that Truman was too sentimental, that he was too political. You shouldn't let political calculations come into effect when you're deciding what's going on in the Middle East. And, uh, and, and the famous moment with Eisenhower is, well, again, pro-Israel, supporting the right of the state of Israel to exist. What happens is October 1956, Again, we remember context, 48 plus 4 is 52, 52 plus 4 is 56, right? It's another election year. And on the eve of the presidential election, what happens? The Sinai campaign where Israel, being attacked constantly by Egypt in the south, allies with not the United States of America, but France and the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and goes in and they, uh, you fill in the blank, liberate, conquer, uh, work through the Sinai, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and it's on the eve of Eisenhower's re-election campaign. He feels double-crossed. How come he didn't tell me? I'm supposed to be the representative of peace and prosperity, tranquil tranquility. And you do this on the eve of my re-election? Plus, I didn't even know about it. And he pressures Israel, and again, I, I apologize, as you know, the short version. Uh, he pressures Israel to pull back, and the UN puts a buffer zone between the Egyptian uh, and, and an army uh, uh, between the Egyptian border and the Israeli border, and basically says, "Okay, we'll have a UN, but we'll have UN buffer troops to make sure that there'll be peace for the next 50 years." And it worked. Oh no, it didn't work. But we'll get to that in a second. Eisenhower. So Eisenhower is remembered as a kind of critical friend of Israel, nevertheless a friend. There's actually an interesting book that came out which points out something that we're going to see again and again, which is that as Eisenhower got closer and closer to retirement, which is as he got deeper into his term, and as things in the Arab world got complicated, because when you look at our multidimensional perspective, we also have to remember what's going on in the Arab world, and as Gamal Abdel Nasser asserts his power and starts aligning with the Soviet Union, we start seeing actually in the last couple of years of Eisenhower's uh, administration a move toward Israel, but still no formal arms exchanges, and again, this flirtation. We continue on our quick journey, and we get to John Kennedy. Now, of course, the Jews know, going in to the 1960 campaign, that John Kennedy isn't their friend. Why? Because John Kennedy is the son of Joe Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy was a notorious anti-Semite. Joe Kennedy, um, when he had been ambassador to England in the 1930s, had been, again, I like to be careful in our language. We wouldn't call him pro-Nazi, but he certainly was in the debate that was going on in the United States at the time, someone who was a little bit softer on Germany uh, and, and, and not pushing for war. And so he's the notorious son of an anti-Semite. He's not going to be any good. Well, one of my 
favorite stories about that has to do with the 1960 campaign when Martin Luther King was imprisoned in Georgia on a traffic violation and thrown into the depths of the Georgia prison system. And without polling, without consulting, John Kennedy just picked up the phone and called Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's wife, and said, uh, we're going to watch out for him. We're going to make sure he, he survives. And Robert Kennedy, probably breaking a whole bunch of laws without even consulting with his brother, called the Georgia Attorney General and said, this man doesn't die. You watch this man. We're going to come after you if you do. And Coretta Scott King is very grateful. She goes to Daddy King, Martin Luther King's father, and tells him the story. And he says, we're going to take a whole heap of votes and put them on John Kennedy's doorstep, even though he's a Catholic. Because, <laughs> of course, John Kennedy's the first American Catholic running for uh, president since Al Smith. Al Smith had lost. John Kennedy is hoping it's a new generation. And, and traditionally, African Americans had been Republican supporters. So they're going to go for, oh, who's that guy who ran against them in 1960? <laughs> I, hear this, I feel the spirit, Richard Nixon. Well, John Kennedy arrives on an airfield, and he's asked very quickly, well, what do you think about the fact that the father of this great civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, Daddy King, seems to be a bit of a bigot? Kennedy hesitates and without missing a beat, says, well, we all have fathers, don't we? <laughs> and, and in fact, I would say that in some ways, John Kennedy's father encouraged him to make sure to reach out to the Jewish people, reach out to the fledgling Jewish state. He actually visited uh, Palestine, um, and saw what was going on, and he comes in, and again, I, I apologize, we're, we're telescoping horribly, horrifically, uh, goes in and uh, continue, and he understands the importance of having a deep relationship with Israel, but he has a problem. He says, you know, Ben-Gurion comes and gives me some $10 Bible, and I have to say thank you. My wife Jackie is getting these amazing stallions from Saudi Arabia, like what am I going to do? <laughs> and, he goes and he, and he turns to one of his diplomats. He, doesn't, he, he won't go to J tell Jackie him, himself. And he says, could you tell Jackie like, to hold off on the stallion? She goes, tell Jack I'm keeping him. <laughs> Nevertheless, continue. Uh, one of the things that Kennedy does, building on what Truman had done, right? because as I said, Truman was so proud of the fact that he supported the state of Israel. He saw it as biblical. And he remembered that Cyrus had, uh, the, the Persian king had brought the Jewish people back after the destruction of the first temple. Actually, the truth is that he invited the Jewish people back. Many of them stayed back in, in, uh, in, in, in Babylonia, but that's a whole other story. Um, and, and Kennedy understands that it's also going to be about shared values. And he speaks about the state of Israel and the, the, con the deep connection that we have. And look at that last line. It carries the shield of democracy and it honors the sword of freedom. And so we're starting to see these shared values, not just shared interests because of the Cold War, not just shared interests because Gamal Abel Nasser and the craziness going on in Egypt, but also the shared values. Two democracies in a world which doesn't have many democracies. And under Kennedy, we see the first arms agreement, but very important image, it's, anti, it's, it's missiles against aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles, so it's defensive. We're not yet going into an offensive relationship. And who is the main supplier for Israel at the time? France. Charles de Gaulle's France. Now we jump ahead, and John Kennedy, of course, is tragically assassinated. Continue, please. And Lyndon Johnson comes in. Now, especially after the trauma of the presidential assassination. Again, we're going to warn, you know, you go into the presidency, you never know what's going to happen. 
<laughs> the president doesn't know and the people don't know, for better and for worse. And Johnson says, you know, everybody thinks that John Kennedy was Israel's best friend. He said, I'm truly Israel's best friend. And it's actually not known. And, and let's, let's talk about the fact, part of the reason why American Jews, first of all, after you know, Kennedy was so charming and so Harvard and so Ivy League and, 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 and so perfect, and then especially after his assassination, he becomes this martyr, so American Jews feel he's one of us. And Johnson is this crude southerner with an accent from Texas. He likes to relieve himself while, with the door open while his aides are watching to make them squirm. You know, this is not you know, elegant. He's not our idea of a president. But John says, you don't understand. First of all, having fought in World War II, okay, he went as a congressman and it was a bit of a show, but he, he, he feels like so many of those presidents at that time feel the power of the need to support the Jewish state because they saw what happens when there's no Jewish state. They saw what happens when anti-Semitism is rampant through the Holocaust. And it affected John Kennedy. It affected Lyndon Johnson. It would affect all these presidents from what we call the greatest generation, including Richard Nixon. He says, I'm going to be their best friend. I'm going to look out for them. And indeed, we continue. He too, in a speech to the B'nai B'rith, will talk about our society is illuminated by the spiritual insights of the Hebrew prophets. We have a common love of human freedom. And he also says, my Christian faith springs from yours. We're brothers. What an amazing thing. Didn't happen in Poland. Didn't happen in Russia. Didn't happen in Morocco. The extraordinary bond between the American people and the Jewish people, the extraordinary way not only American presidents, but the American people have accepted Jews as one is something that we shouldn't take for granted and we should say thank you for. Continue. And when Alexei Kasigan, the Prime Minister of Russia goes, why are you supporting? You've only got 3 million Jews at the time and uh, 80 million Arabs. Lyndon John says, because it is right. Now, for all his love of Israel, the relationship can get complicated. And so while indeed there's a start of military support, especially because on the eve of the Six-Day War, France, uh, led by de Gaulle, pulls support out for Israel, the question of what Johnson will do in May 1967 and what Israel will do is very complicated. Let's Go back to context. Nasser has united Egypt, Jordan, and Syria under the United Arab Republic. They're threatening every day to throw the Jews into the sea. It's 1967, not so many years after the Holocaust, when somebody threatens to throw the Jews into the sea, you take that threat seriously. The Jews in Israel are in trauma. Do you know that they planned in Tel Aviv 10,000 graves? Because that's how many they expected, that was the kind of casualties they expected. What are we going to do? How are we going to survive? And France pulls out? Who's going to stand up for us? Well, we'll look closely at the next uh, memo and we'll see that the United States itself is a little bit unsure. During this difficult month of May 1967, this is a memo from uh, Walt Rostow to President Johnson. First of all, they talk about the Israeli aid package. So we see already military relationship building. Uh, and he says, I've told the ambassador that we'll substantially meet their requests. Well, that's coy, right? There's a game going on here, right? Politics is a game. Um, but what I, what I particularly like is in the fourth paragraph, it says, in hearing their report on their trip to Israel, you may want to ask whether they have any feeling for Eshkol's intention to attack Syria. They don't know you're president of the United States and you're still trying to figure out what this guy is going to do in the Middle East. And we continue with the next slide. And, uh, and that's a memo from Rostow 
from Gene Rostow, Rostow's brother, to Ambassador Harmon, and just look in the second column. Uh, he says, we're going to support you, and I just want you to know that should there be any attempt at the very stop, at the very top of the right, should there be any attempt to interfere with free and innocent passage through the Strait or in the Gulf, the United States government would wish to consult immediately with the government. Hmm. <laughs> Don't you want more <laughs> enthusiastic support than that? The United States supports Israel. The United States backs Israel, but during that difficult month, and ultimately, Levi Eshkol, the prime minister, goes in with a preemptive strike, and we know what happens, the, the six-day war occurs and the six-day miracle. But I want to emphasize that for all the growing intensity and support, there's also a kind of dance going on. And that is the intro to the Richard Nixon period. So now there's a greater bond, and we're now in a, in a period of more interdependence. Can't live with them, can't live without them. And we'll continue. And uh, we see that this is an era of Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, uh, the Israeli prime minister is Golda Meir. And while her reputation in Israel has had its ups and downs, uh, she's still quite beloved uh, in the United States, especially among American Jews. She was one of those people who just had that ability to tell, a great, uh, to tell the whole story in one line. Uh, we Jews have a secret weapon in our struggle with the Arabs, she would say. We have no place to go. We do not rejoice in victories, she would say. We rejoice when a new kind of cotton is grown and when strawberries blossom in Israel. And uh, about old age, she said, well, old age is like a plane flying through a storm. Once you're aboard, you, there's nothing you can do. You can't stop the plane. You can't stop the storm. You can't stop time. So you might as well accept it calmly and wisely. Words to the wise. She also said, of course, and to this day people remember this and quote her, that we will have peace when the Arab world loves their children more than they hate our children. And I don't want to demonize, and I don't want to go into stereotypes, and I don't want to talk about the entire Arab world, but there's a certain truth to that that still holds, and, 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 and that, that yearning for peace continues. Anyway, Nixon is charmed by Golda Meir. Uh, Golda Meir is very charming. She had actually, she was born in Russia, grew up in Milwaukee, has an American accent, has, you know, gives off this kind of, you know, she's a little bit of Margaret Thatcher, a little bit of an old Jewish lady, um, and, 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 and it works. That, that mix kind of works. And, uh, and, and the two of them spend time together. Uh, Nixon is going to be the first American president to visit Israel. And if we had more time, or if I ever get invited back and I do a whole lecture on Nixon and, uh, and Israel, we could see the tape, uh, which you can still see on, on YouTube, of uh, Richard Nixon greeting Golda Meir at the White House. And it's a very moving moment when the uh, Marine Band plays, na 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 the Hatikva, the Jewish National Anthem. It was, again, Israel wasn't young. Israel was fragile. It was vulnerable. It's being accepted in the White House. And we'll uh, rush ahead, 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Israel, at the last minute, realizes that their intelligence was wrong, that American intelligence was wrong, and that on the holiest day of the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, there's going to be this massive surprise attack. And these memos give us a little bit of a sense of what's going on. The Israelis are asking for support. And the Americans are, are, are debating, what do we do? Uh, and there's a fear if we oversupply, that's the phrase, with consumables, that's the other phrase. Consumables basically means weapons, but consumables, I guess, is, sounds safer and, and, and more constructive. Uh, if we oversupply, then what, what about the day after? Will Israelis come out of it too strong, too overconfident? But at the same time, 
Golda Meir is fearing that we're experiencing the destruction of the Third Temple. Do we have to go nuclear? What are we going to do? 2,700 Israelis would die in that war. And it's very interesting, the great historian Michael Oren points out that Israelis tend to tell the story of the Yom Kippur as a great military defeat. In West Point, it's taught as an amazing military victory because having absorbed losses after a surprise attack, eventually Israel won. And Oren points out there was this other war in American history where there was a surprise attack 75 years ago in December, um, and nevertheless America won, Pearl Harbor, right, in World War II, and Americans teach it as a victory. So it gets into the interesting psychologies of American Israel, but that's for the group therapy session afterwards. <laughs> These memos help us see the tensions that are going on. Um, Henry Kissinger, they're talking about this, uh, this resupply. And Kissinger says, he's talking to Ambassador Dinitz, representing the State of Israel. He says, you're going to have to paint El Al out. You know what that means? The planes that are going to be used, how are we going to, if once they even agree to pass on armaments, how do we pass them on? We don't want to make it too obvious that it's coming from the United States. So we're going to paint El Al out. We're going to paint out the symbols of Israel's national airline. It's going to come in these sort of generic looking planes, are going to bring it. Um, the tension is growing. What do we do? Uh, and then there's a great line, Secretary Kissinger um, speaking to Dennis. He says, it's absolutely essential that senators and congressmen don't go, out, go around attacking the president. Ripikoff called me to tell me there's a story going around that I kept you from preempting. See what happens with Henry Kissinger? He goes from don't attack the president to don't attack me. <laughs> and, um, and there's a whole question of did Israel, was Israel stopped by Kissinger in at least giving a bit of a preemptive strike during those difficult days. But the real tension is the resupply. Nixon, who supports the state of Israel, has a good friendship with Golda Meir. Now again, let's put context. It's October 1973. The Watergate burglary had occurred in 1972, in June 1972. Re-election, massive re-election, November 1972. But January, February, March, April 1973, and then July 1973 with the Senate, drip, 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 the Watergate revelations are coming out. Nixon's frustrated. Nixon's terrified. And Nixon now has an opportunity to lead. And he finally says, and everybody's saying, don't do it, be wary. He says, you know, we would take as much heat for sending three C5As as for sending 30, so let's do it. In fact, he says, and I'm quoting, God damn it, use everyone we have. Tell them to send everything that can fly. When Golda Meir hears that, she cries. When the Israeli people, feeling so abandoned, so alone, so terrified, see those planes coming in over Tel Aviv, they sing in the streets of Tel Aviv, God bless America. And Richard Nixon, is seen as the savior of the state of Israel. I can feel the power in the room. The conservatives of Orange County are in love with me. But now, buckle your seatbelts, we're gonna go ahead. Um, and these are more memos uh, showing the complexity, continue. But there's a mystery about Richard Nixon, continue please. There's a mystery. One more. No, one more. At the same time, we also know that Richard Nixon said some pretty nasty things about the Jews. Buckle your seatbelts and let's listen, Caesar.
Thank you. We're going to continue. Uh, I'll read it for those of you who couldn't understand, but I thought it was dramatic. Um, and I'll give context also. I just played it, right? The context is it's April 19th, 1973. There's, uh, I'm sorry, April 19th, 1972. Nixon is about to go to Russia for this pre-election, right? He, Nixon to China, Nixon to Russia. And he's worried that the Jewish community is making trouble over the issue of Soviet Jewish emigration. And he says to Henry Kissinger, if they torpedo this summit, I'm gonna put the blame on them and I'm gonna do it publicly at nine o'clock at night before 80 million people. I won't want mind one goddamn bit to have a little anti-Semitism if it's on that issue. They put the Jewish interest above America's interest and it's about goddamn time that the Jew in America realizes he's an American first and a Jew second. And I don't know if you heard, but Henry Kissinger, a Holocaust survivor, the first Jewish Secretary of State said, I couldn't agree with you more, Mr. President. How do we reconcile the two? Well, I turn to the words of Len Garment. Len Garment was Richard Nixon's law partner in the years of Nixon's exile when he was in uh, New York in political exile. And, uh, and they became good friends. And Garment was a proud Jew from Brooklyn, went on to become a lawyer. Uh, he also was actually in a jazz trio with uh, somebody you may have heard of named Alan Greenspan, but that's a whole other lecture. And, and uh, Garment is appointed by Nixon as his emissary to the Jewish community to the intellectuals, to the artists, to all the people Richard Nixon didn't know and often didn't like. And in fairness, often they didn't like him. And Garment says, look, Nixon was a champion hater. He hated people who opposed him. If you were in his way, he pushed through. And so he says, and he also adds, this is a kid who grew up in Brooklyn in the 1930s and 40s, if you show me a, a Christian, or for that matter a Jew, who does not have some traces of anti-Semitism in his or her soul, I will show you a human, a human being whose body contains no germs. So Garment's saying, look, I live in this complicated world. I understand that sometimes when he was angry, he used these really ugly words. I also understand that he appointed me. He appointed Henry Kissinger. He supported the State of Israel. And in another tape, which I won't uh, uh, play for you, with Billy Graham, Nixon also gives a little secret to that. And he says, well, the best Jews are actually the Israeli Jews. And, and what we see is that in Nixon's mind, in the mind of anti-Semites, they're the American Jews and the Israeli Jews. But what does he mean by the American Jews? He doesn't mean his close friends. He means the Jewish intellectuals who opposed him, the Jewish writers who opposed him. Now, I'm not supporting anti-Semitism. I'm not justifying it. But as a historian, I want to just understand it in context. Because otherwise you go, how did this guy who saved the state of Israel also end up uh, saying these ugly things? And as historians, our job is not to sit and judge. We're not Siskel and Ebert giving a thumbs up or thumbs down. It's to explain, it's to contextualize, and to see complexity. And uh, if we understood the complexity of the U.S.-Israel relationship more, um, and the depth, we, I think, would be less uh, nervous all the time. We continue, and now I'm going to you know, run quickly through. So we, we see Gerald Ford emerging as... Uh, the supporter of the state of Israel, but complicated. On the one hand, he pushes a reassessment in March 1975, freezing U.S.-Israel relations because he wants to put pressure on Israel because now it's the end game and Henry Kissinger's doing all the show of diplomacy. We continue, but also under Gerald Ford, we have that extraordinary moment where Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the U.S. representative to the U.N., stands up, next slide, and, uh, and says that I must stand 
for Israel when the Zionism is being accused of being racism in the form of the United Nations. And, you know, Moynihan said, you know, I never had a close tie to Israel because as a professor, I never got invited to one of those fun trips. But he sees this as an attack on decency and on democracy. And just if I can share one moment, which is very powerful, in the weeks before November 10th, 1975, when this ugly resolution is, is passed in the General Assembly, they first go to the third committee, the Human Rights Committee. And in the Human Rights Committee, what happens? Of course, it's passed. Moynihan doesn't speak. Len Garment gets up. Our friend Len Garment and speaks. He's now representing the US to the Human Rights Committee. And he says, this is an obscenity. He says, as a trial lawyer, I weighed. What word would I use? And it's an obscenity to see what's going on. Because why an obscenity demeans us all, it sullies us all. The United Nations is going to turn human rights into a battering ram. It's going to hurt human rights. It's going to hurt the UN. Chaim Herzog, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, waves his finger and says, the Jewish people aren't on trial. The United Nations is on trial. Will it fulfill its founding ideals? And of course it doesn't. They pass the resolution on to the General Assembly. The delegates break out in mock applause, mocking Israel, mocking the UN, mocking their core ideals. Herzog, anticipating this display, had told the Israeli delegation to hold their hands, to, hold, to clap their hands because he knew how angry they would be and to not show anything. You represent the dignity of the Jewish people. You represent the dignity of democracies. But from across the room, a tall, six-foot-five Irish Catholic kid from the streets of New York who had gone on to become a Harvard professor, who had worked in the Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford administrations, a remarkable display of bipartisanship, which we so desperately need today, stands up, straightens his tie, crosses the room, hugs Chaim Herzog, and permission to quote accurately, loudly yells, fuck him! <laughs> and, uh, and they walk arm in arm out of the UN. And that's the tension. That ugly resolution shows to us what the real challenge is with the U.S.'s relationship. That ugly re re resolution shows us that, as I said earlier, anti-Israel forces really exist. Anti-Israel forces go and single out one country, despite the fact that it was voted in in November 29, 1947, and say, that's the country that's illegitimate. That's the country who's acceptable only contingent on good behavior. That's the country we're going to demonize. That's the country we're going to delegitimize. And what happens? We see what we, I call the delegitimization derby. You go from saying, I don't like this Israeli policy, or I don't like this Israeli prime minister, to therefore the country doesn't have the right to exist. Who does that? We don't question the right of Pakistan to exist, even if we dislike what it does. It's only Israel that's on probation. And in that context, in that ugly context, and it started, Moynihan called it the big red lie, the big Soviet lie about Zionism being racism, singling out. And why use that word, racism? Because you want to use the ugliest word in the international vocabulary. And we see today that even though the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians is a national conflict, we see the words racism always used. Apartheid, this ugly analogy. And lies about colonialism, imperialism. What kind of empire does Israel have? You want to criticize the settlements, fine, but why use those words? And so when we see the role of the United States, and now this is the part where I'm wrapping up and rushing ahead, and we see how in, as a result of those moments, those bonding moments, Jimmy Carter comes in and despite whatever issues he has, he negotiates a Camp David peace treaty. And that actually sets a standard. Every president since has wanted to throw that Hail Mary pass and solve the problems of the Israeli Middle East, and, and uh, Israel in the Middle East conflict, which doesn't always work. And we see after Carter, 
In comes Ronald Reagan during the difficult days of the Lebanon War and the fight over AWACS. These are things you can Google at home. I'm just trying to give you some things to think about. And one of the things we start seeing is the pattern we saw with Eisenhower, with Reagan, with George W. Bush, um, with George H.W. Bush, we're going to see that often the relationship starts a little rocky, but then often bonds and becomes clearer as Reagan saw how important Israel was in defending the West, in defending democratic values, in defending America. And then we see with George H.W. Bush, he's most famous for his fight with Israel over loan guarantees. But we forget also that in 1991, George H.W. Bush had his chief di diplomats, including James A. Baker, working the phones to rescind the Zionism as racism resolution. And we then see Bill Clinton working so hard to match the high standards set by Jimmy Carter during the Oslo peace process. And, and indulge me one important anecdote at the very end of this, where there is an Oslo peace process. Of course, it started in Oslo. That's why it's called the Oslo peace process. But Clinton goes in and embraces it and tries to get, remember that famous picture, uh, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shaking hands? At the very end, when it looks, seems so close, because it's the magic of the 90s, right? It's the magical time when uh, the Soviet Union is, is, is falling apart and Germany, once divided, is now being united and there's peace now breaking out in, I in Northern Ireland, there's peace breaking out in, uh, in South Africa and it seems like we have a shot here at peace. And, and Bill Clinton is very clear. He has criticisms of Bibi Netanyahu and of the Israelis, but in his memoirs he says that his last days of the White House, when Yasser Arafat came to visit him and Arafat says to him, oh, Mr. President, you're a very great man. He looks at it, he yells, he says, I'm a failure because of you. We could have had a peace treaty. We could have had peace, and you weren't ready to make that business. So it goes back to Golda Meir. I don't say that about every Palestinian, but when Palestinian leaders are ready to accept the state of Israel, then we'll have an opportunity and a shot at peace. And George W. Bush, you know, he's remembered as this guy who just embraced Israel enthusiastically. Well, you actually have to look closely and see that it was only after 9-11 and after the Korean A incident where armaments that were being shipped from Iran to the Palestinians, uh, to the Palestinian Authority, were intercepted by the Israelis. And despite the fact that the Israelis sent George W. Bush a big stack of documents showing the, the linkage between Arafat and the Iranians, but forgot to tell the media. And, uh, and all they did was, to the media, show the pictures of all the armaments. So Arafat and George W. Bush were talking on the phone, and Arafat goes, oh, I don't know anything about this. And George W. Bush says, you get to, you get to lie to a Texan once not a second time. And, and that leads to a, a, a greater uh, uh, intensity of the relationship. And the Barack Obama relationship. I don't think, as Thomas Friedman has said, he's the greatest friend of Israel ever. I think there are others who put uh, more valid claims to that. But I think to call him anti-Israel is a mark of immaturity and, and a mark of, that distorts the conversation. He's been critical of Israel. He believes in tough love toward Israel whereas Bill Clinton believed in love, love toward Israel. And I actually think the historical record suggests that when Israel feels supported and feels that the United States is fighting the fight against delegitimization, it's more willing to compromise. Look, if you ask me how I feel, if you call me every ugly name in the book, racist, colonialist, imperialist, I go into my defensive crouch. If the world accepts me and doesn't say it's about my legitimacy, I might trust a little more. Psychology 101. And so uh, I want to end with three thoughts and open for questions. One, and again, I apologize for how quick uh, this overview was, but what am I trying to give a sense of? The complexity, the depth, that it's a three-dimensional relationship. 
I started with the flirtation, and then you know, she loves me, loves me not. They're connected, they're bonded. Why? Because the United States and America on so many levels understand that we need each other. And it's not, point two, some artificial relationship that emerges only because of powerful lobbies. There's no lobby powerful enough in the world, and certainly not in the United States, to shape this kind of depth, to shape the kind of love that Moynihan showed and that Richard Nixon showed and that John Kennedy showed and that Lyndon Johnson showed and that Harry Truman showed. You can't make up those kind of values. You can't make up that kind of dimensionality. And so third, I'll end with two different expressions. One, everybody likes to talk about shared values and shared interests. And I think we've seen that, right? And again, in a longer version, we'd look at even today how the reliability of the United, of how, how the United States relies on Israel. Stable, democratic society in, you know, in a Middle East that's gone mad. We see how it's not just a one-way relationship, but it's a two-way relationship, that it's a true mutual friendship where Israel supports the United States and the United States supports Israel in different ways, militarily, diplomatically, emotionally, ideologically. And the American people, 60 to 70%, remain supportive of the state of Israel. So I say shared interests and shared values, but I also add a third, shared challenges. I go back to what I began with. The United States of America is going through a difficult time right now in its democracy. Israel is going through a difficult time in its democracy. Rather than sitting there and waving fingers one another saying, oh, we're the perfect ones and you're not, let's learn together about what it's like to create a vibrant, healthy democracy in the 21st century, in the age of the internet, with all the ugliness that festers there, in an age of growing polarization and, and partisanship. How do we go together? How do we learn from each other? They're not twin democracies, they're sister democracies. And finally, and with this I'll end, the three words that were said and sung by Israelis on the streets of Tel Aviv. God bless America. God bless America for supporting the state of Israel. God bless America for being a model to the state of Israel of how a constructive liberal democracy can function. Because Israel was made up of hundreds of thousands of immigrants, mostly from non-democratic countries. And the United States taught Israel how to be democratic. And God bless America. We're so lucky to live in a country that for all its flaws and for all its challenges, is still a stable, is still decent, and still knows how to do the right thing. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have, we, we have time for a few questions. Questions are short, pointed, and as a Canadian scholar, they end up a little Canadian, eh? Uh, <laughs> Yes, there's a question over here. Uh, and speak to the microphone, please. You talked about the relationship of tough love or love love. Do you think that would work with the UN to refine its founding ideals, or is the UN a lost cause? <laughs> okay, excellent question. So the question is, is the UN a lost cause, or, or, or can it be fixed? You know, let, I want to divide the question. Because I want, there are two UNs, and this actually gets to the heart of the problem. The United Nations is the world's greatest social service agency. The United Nations is the greatest force in world history fighting disease, fighting illiteracy, fighting for good in many corners of the world. As a result, by the way, when something ugly is said about Israel, because so many people in developing countries experience the UN as their savior, they believe that Zionism is racism. And that's how you get this bizarre thing where uh, the, the former US ambassador 
to the UN, Gene Kirkpatrick would talk about going to landlocked countries in Africa and seeing big science saying Zionism is racist. What skin do they have in the game? If the UN says you're bad, you're bad because the UN is good. So one of the problems is how do you condemn an organization which does so much good? At the same time, you have this General Assembly, you have this UN, and I'm putting big quotation marks, Human Rights Commission, which rather than focusing on the horrific slaughter that's going on in Syria, going, the, the ugly sexism that goes on in Saudi Arabia, the death penalties that, that are constantly given against gays in Iran, obsesses about Israel. So in some ways my answer is, as a historian, we have no choice. We have no choice but to try to fix the United Nations. And I will say, I briefly mentioned it, that we saw in 1975, Moynihan fought hard. And he got more votes than was expected against the resolution, although the resolution passed. And people said, you're not being diplomatic. Tone down. He said, what is this toning down? I'm supposed to tone down when I'm fighting a lie? He says, being diplomatic doesn't mean appeasing. He says, being diplomatic sometimes means being tough. Sometimes standing up to your adversaries. And he stood tall. And it made an impact. More so, we saw in 1991, it led to the first time in UN history that a resolution was side-tabled. It wasn't formally rescinded, but it was, it was side-tabled because of effective leadership. And let's pull back our camera. Remember what's our favorite text? Context, the fall of the Soviet Union. And so the dynamics changed. We have no choice but to be there, and we have no choice but to fight. And when I say we, I mean a big, broad coalition of people who care about human rights and care about democracy and care about the UN fulfilling its founding ideals. And we have to hope and pray that we have enough leadership and enough luck to take advantage of the changing world to push the UN to be what it should be and what it could be and what it often isn't. Yes, sir. With a pun intended, there's an elephant in the room uh, in regard to the president-elect. Where do you see the new administration going in regard to Israel? Okay, thank you. Uh, the president-elect is Donald Trump, right? <laughs> Make sure you tell me that. Um, so, so the question is, where do I see the president-elect going? And you know, I always say, and this election season certainly showed it, that as a historian, it's hard enough for me to predict the past. I can't begin to predict the future. Um, but let me say three things. One, let's quote Donald, or what I'd first like to do as a historian, let's quote Donald Trump. Donald Trump, I want you to know, was the grand marshal of the Israel Day Parade in 2007, and it was the best parade ever. <laughs> and that, to me, goes down in American history as one of the most embarrassing foreign policy credentials ever. So, so for those who hate Donald Trump, uh, what does it emphasize? We don't know, he don't know, right? Because in fairness, even if you're a Donald Trump supporter, you have to say part of the appeal of Donald Trump was he's an outsider. Part of the appeal of Donald Trump is he has no governmental experience. Part of the danger of Donald Trump is he's an outsider. Part of the danger of Donald Trump is he, 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 he has no governmental experience. So we really don't know what he's going to do. That's number one. Number two is when he says that, I think he does have a, an understanding of these shared interests and shared values. Uh, I don't think he's really into the shared challenges piece. Um, he, has, he has an understanding that Israel is, and, and he's, we, we see he's a, he's, a, he's a politician who goes by the gut. Right? You're with me, you're against me. And so he feels Israel with me. Um, Ivanka also tells him Israel with you, so Israel with me. But, but, What's the concern? And this is a concern that you're fear, feeling in Israel. The, uh, in Israel I'll, I'll answer by quoting Israelis, so I, I, I can continue to be nonpartisan. Israelis have two fears. One, 
When the United States catches a cold, Israel catches a fever. If this is a, a period that we're going into of instability, of amateurishness, of insanity, it'll be bad for the United States, it'll be bad for the world, it'll be bad for Israel. So that's one of the concerns you're feeling. Um, and the second concern, frankly, is the art of the deal. He said when he was speaking to the Republican Jewish Coalition, I can do it, I'm a deal maker. And the worry is, will he come in with a, uh, a heavy hand, and if Israelis don't march to his tune, will he turn on them? So those are the concerns, and then to just flip it around one more time, uh, on, on the other hand, uh, the, the other thing is that there, there are many uh, in the Orthodox world, uh, especially in the Orthodox Jewish world, and many in the conservative Jewish world, who are so frustrated with Barack Obama's tough love uh, that they feel that it's time to try a new approach, and they want to go back to the Bill Clinton love love, and if he does that, he'll be good. So those are things to think about. Um, as you can see, I don't want to uh, be partisan. I also want to predict the two Ps that we historians try to avoid. Are there any other questions? We have time for one more, um, or just my summary? Okay, so my summary. Uh, I want to go back to what I began. I'm well aware that these are difficult times. I'm well aware that it's hard for us to sit down in a, in a, in a public forum and talk about Donald Trump respectfully and talk about Donald Trump without getting angry. I understand that we're in a, a time now where it's also hard in the Jewish community itself to sometimes talk about Israel. And people are so quick to go, you're anti-Israel, you're pro-Israel, right? And what do we do? Because part of it is, what do we start with? This is a, the mis big mistake we make as Americans and Israelis uh, and as Jews. We start with what we disagree with. Why don't we start with the common values that we have? Why don't we start with a conversation on campus rather than finding a left-wing Jew and a right-wing Jew to argue about what Israel should do 6,000 miles away with its borders. Why don't you start with, what does having a Jewish state mean, for, mean to me? Why don't we see the shared values that we have, the shared concerns we have, and then get to half an hour later whatever fights we have. Similarly, in the United States, we could go red-blue all the time. But one of the gifts, by the way, of the bipartisan, notice this has been a, I have not mentioned Republican and Democrat, because I don't think there's a Republican style in supporting Israel. There's a Democratic style in supporting Israel. There's a presidential style in supporting Israel. And one of the things I was talking about, the mutuality, the gift that Israel has given to the United States is that in the same way that the United States has given Israel a gift of bipartisan friendship on the whole, that's a gift to the United States because a healthy democracy needs issues on which left and right, red and blue, Republicans and Democrats agree. And so that, is the vision that I want to leave with you. We need to issue our proclamations when we disagree, but we also need to remember there are things on which we agree. And that was the message, by the way, of Ed Koch, who said, if you agree with me on, 12, on seven out of 12 things, please vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 out of 12 things, please see a psychiatrist. <laughs> I think we need a mass intervention. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you for coming out. We tried to finish so you can get yourself some lunch. Stay around if you want to check out the museum. And don't forget, Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s is for sale. If you would like it autographed, Professor Troy will stick around for a bit. And have a great uh, week. Happy uh, Hanukkah and Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you.